Welcome to the UCL Physics and Engineering and Medicine podcast. I'm Gemma Bale, here with Jamie Guggenheim. Hi everyone. We're meeting researchers to learn about the latest research in medical physics and biomedical engineering at UCL. This week, we're talking to Professor Claire Elwell, Professor of Medical Physics and Director of the Near Infrared Spectroscopy Group. Enjoy. Hi, Claire. Hi, Gemma. Hi, Jamie. Good to be here. It's nice to have you. So in your own words, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? So as you said in the introduction, I'm Professor of Medical Physics and the area that I've worked in for virtually the whole of my career is biomedical optics, using light to understand the human body. And particularly, I've focused on a technology called near-infrared spectroscopy. Can you just give a brief overview of what near-infrared spectroscopy is? So this is a technique that uses light to essentially measure the colour of the blood. So intuitively, we all understand that blood that contains lots of oxygen appears bright red. So if you shine a white light behind your fingers, you'll see them glowing red. But as the body uses up oxygen, the colour of the blood changes from that bright red to more of a dull red or purple colour. So if we can measure that colour change, then we can measure the change in oxygen levels in the blood. You can just use normal visible light to do that, but the visible light doesn't penetrate penetrate very far into the body so it's not particularly useful. If you use near-infrared light, so this is invisible light of the type that might come out of your TV remote control, you can actually pass that near-infrared light through larger sections of tissue but particularly the skull which enables you to start looking at oxygen levels and the colour of the blood inside the brain. So that's where lots of the applications of this technology have been. But it's essentially, as has been pointed out to me in the past, I've spent my career working on a glorified torch. (laughs) So the colour of the blood tells you about the amount of oxygen in the blood. Why do we want to know that? Good question. So I guess often we're looking at the health of tissues. We want to understand about the way in which the brain, for example, is using oxygen. That tells us a little bit about the function of the brain. And for example, if we're looking for how the brain is processing information, we might want to understand about what particular brain regions are being used to process particular types of information. So lots of the work that I've become involved in is actually looking at the developing brain of infants. And there are really lots of unknowns there about how infant brains develop and what stimulates brain development and equally what can actually adversely impact brain development. But we need to have ways of actually mapping what the brain is doing and particularly what brain function is going on inside these little infants brains. So using light is a really good way of mapping the oxygen distribution in the brain and that's our surrogate measure for mapping the function of the brain. So the more oxygen that's there, the more that bit of the brain is doing something. Yeah, so if you imagined that I sat you in front of a screen that had a really vivid checkerboard pattern on it that was flickering away, the part of your brain that's responsible for processing that information is the visual cortex, which is right at the back of your head under the knobbly bit at the back of your head. And as you were presented with this very visually stimulating image, the neurons in that part of your brain start to fire up and they start to use up oxygen. And the response of your vascular system or your blood supply system is to direct lots of blood to that region. So you'd actually see this surge of red blood coming into the visual cortex part of your brain. And because of that colour change, that's something that we can measure using this optical technique. So if we see a colour change in that region of the brain, that's telling us that oxygen has been diverted there because there's lots of activation and lots of processing in that particular part of the brain. 
So it's very dynamic in that sense as an imaging technology. It doesn't provide the sort of structural images like the anatomical images that a technique like MRI would provide. It's really being used almost exclusively now for looking at what we call functional activation. How are you measuring infant brain development? One of the things that's really important to say is that we are working with neurodevelopmental psychologists. We work mostly with a team at Birkbeck University of London in an institution called Centre for Brain and Cognitive Development. And they pose the questions and we work with them to think how best our technology could answer them. They wanted to understand how infants develop the social part of their brain. What type of stimulus do they respond to um, that helps us understand how they're developing their responses to social cues and their interactions with other humans. So in that example there, we studied a group of infants who were typically developing, so normally developing infants, and we looked at their responses to a range of different visual and auditory cues, some of which were human and social based and others which were non-human. And this enabled us to understand that as young as four months of age, infants have got a very specific response to human and social cues. Cues. And that helps us to understand and map the typical development of an infant brain. So that if we start to look at conditions where we think there is some atypical development or abnormality, for example, autism, then we can see differences in those infants' brains in the way that they start to respond to social and human cues. And potentially that then is a way of showing us early on that these infants' development may be, you know, not following a typical trajectory. So we have to understand the sort of normal development and the mapping of a typical infant brain before we can actually understand what an atypical brain and development looks like. And I think, I guess, what the imaging is telling us in that sense is that we can see what the behaviour of the infants is. And lots of lots and lots of psychology based studies have been done looking at infant behaviour. But if we look at the brain imaging, it's telling us what's driving that behaviour. So why the baby's brain? There's two answers to why the technique near-infrared spectroscopy is particularly useful for infants. The first is they have quite transparent brains. They typically have thinner skulls, which means that we have higher levels of light reaching our detectors. So in terms of just a straightforward measurement perspective, the signal to noise of our data is better. But the other reason is that there are very few other technologies that are really suited to infant studies. So if you wanted to have your brain image now, you'd probably go into an MRI scanner. It's a high tech environment. You'd be instructed to lie very still. It's quite noisy inside that scanner. It's quite claustrophobic. And you very much know that you're having your brain image and that you're having a procedure of that type. Clearly, there are lots of reasons why that sort of technology is not suitable for infants. And so this technology, which is very portable and adaptable and wearable, lends itself really well to infant studies because our aim is to be imaging these babies' brains without them realising that we're doing that. Yeah. It's a sort of physics side of the optics of the transparency of the baby's brain suits the, the way in which we're making our measurements, but the way in which we're making our measurements suits the infants. The idea of a transparent brain is slightly creepy, isn't it? It is. It is. When you study, as Gemma has done a lot of, very tiny babies, so premature babies, when you're dealing with those babies, you really see the vulnerability of those babies, particularly if they're in intensive care. But sometimes you can really see how translucent they are, can't you, Gemma? Mm. You know, it's, it's yeah, uh, yeah. slightly scary. <laughs> and I think given that we don't want to use anything invasive, 
particularly when we're studying infants, being able to use low levels of light that are completely safe, which means that we can perform this type of brain imaging for several hours if we need to without any harm to the baby. That's a really important benefit of this type of approach for imaging. This is still quite a new technology. Is it? Is it a new technology? Well, you know, that's funny because the technology is referred to being new. And I'm thinking, well, I've been working on it for 30 years. (laughs) (laughs) When does it not become new? Yes, I think it's becoming much more widespread. I think with the development of any technology, it has to find its niche. Mm. It has to find the gap that it's filling. And that can take quite a long time, actually. And I think with near-infrared spectroscopy, really using it for infant brain development studies and looking at functional brain, it's taken a little while for us to realise that that's where I would say its major strength lies. It's been used for lots of other things over decades, but I think we're really recognising its strength in that particular area now. It does sound like there's some compelling reasons for that. With If the smaller the baby is, the more transparent their brain gets. It obviously seems like a good match in that sense. And the fact that other technologies, as you say, just seem to be unsuitable. Presumably babies would hate being in an MRI scanner, would they? It is entirely possible to scan babies in an MRI system. And, you know, there are lots of groups that have done that really successfully. The trick is to try and get the babies to go to sleep, Mm. uh, which is possible. And there's been some really clever stuff that's been done to sort of help that. But any type of movement in an MRI scanner causes lots of problems. There are much better movement artifacts algorithms now Mm. to correct that. But also the accessibility and the expense of running an MR scanner. Mm. So the near-infrared systems are relatively inexpensive and it's a single cost. There's virtually no cost per scan, whereas for an MRI scanner, I don't know what the, I haven't costed an MRI scan for a while, but it was up in the region of four or five hundred pounds an hour. And of uh, course, I, what you said about linking the brain function to the behaviour, if your baby's asleep or having to stay really still in an MRI scan, you're not really capturing natural baby behavior no and you're not capturing any type of interaction of the baby with the outside world the world in which they're growing and is informing their development so there are studies now where we can have two babies having their brain image simultaneously so we can look at baby to baby interaction Mm -hmm. we can look at parent to baby interaction which is really important in terms of understanding how that bonding is established and if we have parents who may be at risk of for example postnatal depression you know how does that affect the bonding with their infants and how do we start to understand that so I think the capability of actually enabling the technology to image in a much more naturalistic way is really, really powerful, rather than having very constrained experimental protocols that we have to run in laboratory-based conditions. That's not how the babies experience the real world. So mm. it's it's interesting. The other thing I'll just come back to about the development of the technology is that it's been massively influenced by developments in other areas of physics and engineering, particularly in the telecoms industry. So the types of systems that we're using now have really only been made possible because of the sources and detectors that are now being used, for example, in mobile phones or telecommunications. So we've been able to really benefit from developments in other areas of physics and engineering, which I think has been really important for this work. I was going to ask about sources and detectors. I'm interested in the technology and I suppose we're throwing this word transparent around, but Presumably, it's still quite difficult to get a lot of light through the whole head, for example. Yeah, so the the biggest challenge is the scattering. 
So you get very diffuse scattering of the light just within a fraction of a millimetre of the light going into the tissue. And the effect that we're normally looking for when we're looking at the changes in the colour of the blood, we want to measure changes in absorption. So the scattering, most systems are not using changes in scattering. They're quite difficult to measure as a measure, but it's just that it's a massive attenuation of the light. So we just lose an awful lot of light due to scattering. When I started working on the technology, I guess if you were trying to look at shining the light across a whole baby's head, the limit of that would have been maybe seven centimetres diameter. So most of the systems that were developed then that were looking at trying to get whole head imaging were relying on the light passing that whole distance, which was really challenging. But the systems that we use now are actually topography systems. So we're using like 2D mapping rather than 3D tomography imaging. So we know that we're measuring just the surface areas mostly of the head. But in the infant, that contains a huge amount of information from the surface, the cortex of the brain. But I think that the increase in our understanding of how best to use the available technology has been really exciting. And, and the systems that are being developed now, just lightweight sources and detectors, a lot of systems now don't require the use of optical fibres, which were are really heavy once you put them onto an imaging cap. And I'm so excited every time I go to a, a near-infrared spectroscopy conference and I look at the ex exhibits there from the commercial exhibitors, just the innovation that's going into developing really cool brain imaging using this technique is really exciting. I'm really excited to see how that progresses in the future also. It sounds like after 30 years, it's almost, well, it's still kicking off really, but it sounds like it's it's an interesting time right now. It is a really interesting time. And I think what's come to light excuse the pun is the <laughs> capability of this technology to understand the human brain maybe in a way that other technologies haven't been able to so if you have a wearable imaging system properly wearable where you can understand the function of the brain while somebody is going about a range of different tasks in a naturalistic setting that creates an understanding of brain behavior that we haven't been able to access before so, you know, there's all sorts of interesting projects that are emerging. So one, this idea of measuring two brains at the same time, there's a group in Yale that are looking at conflict resolution. Mm. So if you're brain imaging two people simultaneously who are in conflict and you understand how the function of the brain, different areas of the brain that are recruited and sometimes the synchrony between the two brains helps to inform how moderation work, how mediation works, how conflict resolution works. That for me is really fascinating because it's opening up an area of brain research that up to now has been pretty inaccessible. I think there's this interesting link with the infant brain development study. We're very guided by the questions that the neurodevelopmental psychologists have, but it's our responsibility of physicists and engineers to really keep them updated with the latest in the technology. And so they can say, oh, well, if we can do this, then that changes our whole ambition about the types of questions that we can ask. So it's this push and pull of mm. us delivering the technology to answer the initial questions, but then saying, look, keep pushing us, keep challenging us as engineers, so to increase the ambition of what we can measure. And I think that's what's really exciting about this field. I've seen that happen particularly over the last five years, that push and pull of engineering development and the users of the technology, you know, really pulling the best of the technology out. That's what keeps us excited about keep coming into work and wondering where the next challenge is going to come from. How did you get started in FNIRS? I had graduated from Exeter University with a degree in medical physics, which was pretty unusual. That was back in the 1980s. 
there were only three universities offering that degree at that time. But I knew that I wanted to do medical physics and I was working as a hospital physicist initially Mm. in Exeter. And then I decided that I wanted to move back to London. I was from London originally. So I started firing off letters before the Internet, writing (laughs) letters. And I wrote a letter to the group at, at UCL. And I then got a phone call from Dave Delpy, who at that point ran the group at UCL. And he said, well, we've got a position coming up almost immediately would you like to come up to London and meet and on that visit he took me around the neonatal unit at UCLH the hospital and showed me the work that they were doing with some early neofred spectroscopy systems measuring infant brain but looking at acute brain injury so the type of work that Gemma's now doing and asked if I'd like to join the team I hadn't heard of the technique at that point, but I really loved the idea that I would be working very much in the clinical environment and working with the clinical team directly. So I learned the technology on the job, I guess. I learned an awful lot from the clinicians who were really generous with their time in teaching me all the sort of physiology that I needed to know. And uh, that was incredibly useful. And so that's really where my journey started. And I don't think I realised at the time quite how lucky I was to be dropped into a unique, I would say, research environment that they created at UCL with this amazingly well-established clinical collaboration and embedding of physicists in the clinical area. So, yeah, that's one of the best decisions I've ever made, (laughs) was to take that job. And Dave Delphi went on to become my PhD supervisor and has been a, a mentor for my whole of my career, actually. I know you're working on some really exciting projects in the Gambia, um, looking at developing babies' brains in a completely different environment to the UK. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yes, I had been working with the group that I mentioned before from Bert Beck on looking at infant brain development in infants in the UK. In our group at UCL, what's also really exciting is that we get asked to become involved in lots of different projects. People email us and say, we've heard about your technology. We've got this question. We wonder whether it would be suitable for your technique. So I'd had an inquiry of that type from a group in India who wanted to understand more about malaria and had worked with them and produced a short paper on the use of near-infrared spectroscopy to look at cerebral malaria, but tried to get more funding for that project, but we didn't succeed in the funding bid. So that paper was sort of out there in the public domain, but to be honest, I'd sort of forgotten about it. And I was working on this infant brain development work in the UK. And then I always refer to it as a virtual knock on the door. I got this email from the team in the Gambia introducing themselves and saying, we understand that you're working on a technology that helps you understand infant brain development. And we have seen that you've done some work in a global health setting. Would you be interested in working with us to look at infant brain development in a global health setting? And so that's how that project started. And then I was introduced to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and uh, was able to access some pilot funding from them. Uh, And that funding was purely to fund a feasibility study. Can we actually do brain imaging of infants in a low resource setting in rural Gambia? So that started a journey for me, both professionally and personally, in moving into the field of global health, which has been something I never expected in my career to happen. It's been really challenging, but also hugely rewarding at the same time. What are the challenges in working in a setting like that? 
if we think about the setting that we work in in London, central London, right next to Tottenham Court Road, which is the epicentre of electronic supply shops, right? So <laughs> anything that you need, you can just walk around the corner and pick up. We have high tech labs, we have fully resourced facilities. And we were going out to a field station in the rural Gambia that is actually really well established, but that we knew that we would have to take the whole of our brain imaging lab to that field station, that we couldn't rely on having anything there. So first of all, it was just the unknown. You know, we didn't quite know. I'd never been to Africa before and I hadn't worked in these types of field stations myself. Not understanding quite what the infrastructure would be like and what the facilities would be like. I just worked on the basis that we'd have access to electricity. There's an electrical generator in the field station. But I sort of said to the team, well, let's just assume we have plug sockets, but nothing else. So let's just make sure that we take everything else that we need. And then, of course, really understanding the local environment and understanding how we were going to implement some of the studies that we've been used to doing on infants in the UK and their parents and how we would how we would be adapting those for infants in the Gambia. So the first visit was pretty extraordinary. We packed up all of the system and all of the kit in the UK and we took it with us as excess luggage to the Gambia, collected at the airport by a Land Rover from the Medical Research Council field station driven to the field station and then the next morning we were given a room to set up in and within just over two hours we'd actually set all of our equipment up had the first mother and baby come in and taken our first brain image using NEARS. It was pretty extraordinary that we were able to just transport a brain imaging lab and set it up in that <laughs> space of time. We didn't realise at the time but we know now we're pretty sure now that that's the first infant to have their brain imaged in Africa. Wow. Um, it was just a case of doing it. You know, you could theorise about it for a long time and you could potentially get yourself wrapped up in what all the problems might be. But you just had to get on and do it. And the team were extraordinary, both the UK team that came out with me and also the Gambian team that we worked with there, as were the, the mums and babies in the whole community really excited about being part of this project. So we proved feasibility of the use of this technique. And we managed to go on and study almost 100 babies over a few months so we could have a look at the use of this technology at different ages of infants, which is really important to establish as well. I knew on that first visit to the Gambia that we'd opened up a door to a whole different research area. And it was really exciting. And I, I came back from that first trip to the Gambia and then flew almost immediately out to Seattle to the Gates Foundation for a meeting and was really excited to be able to talk to people about what we'd done to realise that this imaging technology had got the capability that I don't think anyone had realised in a completely different setting. So that's something I'm really excited by and really proud of that we sort of established a new research area which we've called Global FNIRS and now it's really exciting to see how many other groups are now working in this area and developing technology particularly for global health settings. You took the first African infant's brain image. Sorry, is that the right ordering of words? Yeah, we did the first infant brain imaging in Africa. Yeah. yeah. Does yeah. the person whose brain it was, do they know that they were that person? They do. So this is an interesting story. So the field station in the Gambia provides free health care. And the mother of this little boy had walked from the neighbouring country of Senegal to access free health care. And that's why she was in the region. And she was recruited into our study as the first mother and baby. And she actually came back 
on another visit that we were on and I was able to speak with her and I've got a really lovely picture of her and her son a few months probably about eight months later so we imaged his brain in March and we saw them again in November and then I think we saw them the following year as well so yeah she does know (laughs) Mm, that's good that's nice the parents in that study were well in our in our bright study and all the studies we've done have been absolutely extraordinary and generous with the bright study when we imaging and assessing the infants towards their second birthday the assessments can spread over two days we do an awful lot of assessments with them so it's a real commitment from the parents and they've been really extraordinary and the retention rates in that study are brilliant you know we've we've retained virtually the whole cohort which is really challenging over a two-year study you know, for them to come back repeatedly over that time. So, um, yeah, it's been really good, really good. So what's the status of that project now? We followed on from the feasibility funding with a much larger grant. So we've got, I think, just over three and a half million dollars now from the Gates Foundation. And we established a project called the Bright Project, which is brain imaging for global health. And this has enabled us to recruit over 200 infants in the Gambia and 60 infants in the UK. We recruit the infants antenatally, so before they're born, and we image them and do lots of other brain development assessments with them up until their second birthday. And we're looking at the impact of malnutrition particularly and various other risk factors associated with poverty on infant brain development. And we are almost at the point where we've finished our data collection. There's a few more babies that we need to image in the Gambia. So we are furiously analysing our data right now and there are some really interesting findings emerging, looking at the way in which the variability of infant brain development within the Gambia, depending on the status of the infants out there, depending on their growth and their nutrition and other things that might affect their development. So we're pretty sure that FNIRS is going to provide for us the sensitivity that we need to understand the impact of adversity on brain development. And then that will help us inform interventions, you know, to protect these babies' brains. That's the whole reason we're doing these studies is to understand how things like malnutrition affect infant brain development so that we can develop, you know, nutritional interventions that are specified not just to protect infant growth, like physical growth, but to actually protect infant brain development specifically. That sounds an extremely worthwhile task, doesn't it? Yeah, it's sort of sad that it is a task that we still need to do in 2020, that there are still, you know, 150 million children worldwide that are living in in situations where their futures are at risk because Mm -hmm. of the basic nutrition that they should be receiving in their early days, weeks and months of life. And the catastrophic impact of not receiving that nutrition early on the rest of their lives and the potential for the rest of their lives. So in some ways, it's just really sad that these sorts of projects have to happen. But I think having a technology that enables us to understand more about the mechanisms of how malnutrition impacts on the pathways that are being developed very early in these growing brains and how to protect those pathways is literally shining a whole new light on that area of research. And there are other spin-offs now that we're seeing where other global health issues which can benefit from brain imaging are now becoming the focus of studies with this technology as well. Well, it is, of course, on the one hand, very sad that this exists as a task. I wonder how important this kind of information might be in a world where the population keeps growing and resources keep shrinking as well. Everybody might need to know one day how to be efficiently nutritional. 
Yeah, well, I think it's worth noting that, you know, we, we work, don't we, in central London and we probably need to go no further than a couple of miles to find infants that are malnourished in that setting. So they may have enough food, may not be undernourished, but is the balanced diet that they require actually being provided for them? You know, there's a lot of poverty and sometimes extreme poverty in the UK and other developed countries. But what do we understand about what infants need in terms of nutrition and the impact of them not receiving that and other early years type of protective factors, you know, for their development? So it's a bit of a cliche, but they are our future, right? And if we don't look after our future, then we're all going to suffer. There's, I think, quite rightly been a real focus on understanding infant brain development for the benefit of society as a whole. I think that's really important. Because when some of the consequences of disrupted development occur, particularly in early adulthood, it's too late then often. We're dealing with the results of it, yeah. you know, rather than dealing with the prevention of it. Mm. You know, that's something that for me, I've come to realise over the last few years of working on this project, that I've really appreciated that area of research much more, I think, than I ever did before. So when we understand how the FNIR's images look, when we're not developing our brains properly or when we're not having effective nutrition, presumably one day all the kids can have an app on their phone and a wearable FNIR's device that they wear all the time and constantly monitor themselves and make sure they're doing okay. So it's interesting, when I was first introduced to the team in the Gambia, when they first contacted me about this project, and I said, well, what are you currently using to understand infant brain development in your setting? And they said, we're using a tape measure to measure the size of the baby's head, because that's easy, cheap, you can do it on everyone, collect lots of data, and actually provides really useful data. So I often sort of say to the team, you know, we're competing with a tape measure, you know, so... <laughs> If we're going to have technology that really can be used to do what you just said, like screening infant brain development as a screening tool, it needs to be easy to use, adaptable and informative. You know, sometimes we have this tendency as engineers and physicists, it's quite good to appear clever and have really complex systems that we've <laughs> developed, right? And, oh, look at this whiz-bang machine. Who like a complex system? Everyone <laughs> likes a machine with lots of bells and whistles on it. But the really clever people are the people that can make the clever stuff simple. Mm. and make it usable mm. and make it not rely on an engineer to run it you know like the iphone i mean look at that that's the really clever stuff and i'm really optimistic that there are lots of clever people working in that space right now with this technology we need to make sure that that technology is directed at the right questions though it comes back all the time i think it's a bit of a re recurring theme whenever i talk about this work that the technology is only as good as the questions that you pose and those questions have to be really well formed so we have to work with the end users really closely to understand what the questions are that they need and then really put that into our engineering innovation, I think. Do you mean because if you ask the wrong question, it'll just simply never be able to answer it or worse, that it might give an answer that is misleading in some way because it wasn't appropriate? Yeah. So, so we need to understand if I speak to a neurodevelopmental psychologist and they say we'd like to understand the specific function of this brain region then I need to know, I need to be realistic about whether the sensitivity of my technology is going to enable me to answer that question. So I might have to go back and say, well, I, I don't think actually we can tell you about that specific brain region, but we could tell you more broadly what's happening in that centre of the brain. So why don't we reposition the question so that we're confident the technology can answer the question that we're asking? Mm. So we get back to that partnership between the users and the developers, as you said earlier. Yeah. 
Yeah. And it's a real dialogue. And going back to, you know, my first introduction to the work at UCL, the first thing Dave Delpy did. So Dave, Dave Delpy's an engineer. But the first thing he did was take me into the neonatal unit in the hospital and say, this is where we're answering the question. This is the environment you need to understand. You need to speak to the clinicians. You need to understand what we're measuring and how we can measure it in this environment. So we don't start in a lab building the clever bit of kit. We start with the end users saying, tell me what you want to understand. And let's agree the question that we can answer. Mm. Um, I think that's a conversation that's the most important conversation in any project. And we can't leave it till the end. We have to have that at the beginning. So I'm always trying to encourage particularly funding applications where we can fund, for example, clinical time alongside engineering time so that we're actually, you know, making sure that it's a proper collaborative effort right from the beginning. Thanks to Professor Elwell for sharing her research and career with us. This was a University College London podcast presented by Gemma Bale with myself, Jamie Guggenheim. This was produced by Billy Dennis with music from Kevin McLeod. If you like this podcast, please do share it. Gemma and I will be chatting with a new researcher at the end of every month, covering a different area of medical physics and biomedical engineering. If you're interested in studying with us at UCL, please visit our department website at www.ucl.ac.uk forward slash medical hyphen physics hyphen biomedical hyphen engineering. We have undergraduate and master's courses, including study by distance learning and PhD vacancies. You might also consider following the department on Twitter at UCL MedPhys, that's UCL M-E-D-P-H-Y-S. Bye for now. Bye. Right, I better go and log on to this next one. So, yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Jamie. See you later. Bye, Jamie. Bye. Bye, Gemma. Bye. Bye, brother.